When you and I consider the Christmas story according to the Bible, our minds race to the opening chapters of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. It is there that we are introduced to that lovely couple of Mary and Joseph. We read about the scandalous pregnancy, the grueling 90-mile journey to Bethlehem, the overpopulated inn. We're pretty familiar with the star and the stable and the shepherds and those wise men that traveled from the east. And certainly with the arrival of Jesus, there's a great deal of excitement and enthusiasm and angelic celebration. But with the arrival of Jesus, there's also a fair share of tragedy and suffering. This morning, I want to share with you the forgotten Christmas story. It's the part of the story that we don't really talk about a whole lot. Yet today, we conclude our three-part sermon series as we walk through Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Today, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. It's that passage I invite you to take a Bible and turn. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are now dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. After the Magi had come to visit the Lord, we are told that Joseph had a dream. And in that dream, the angel of the Lord said to Joseph, get up, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. This is not the first time that an angel had appeared to Joseph in a dream. This will not be the last time that an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, that Mary was pledged to be married to the man named Joseph. And before they came together, it was discovered that Mary was pregnant. Now, Joseph knew this was problematic because he understood he was not the father of that child. 
He had in his mind to divorce her quietly as to not bring a lot of public shame and disgrace to her or to her family. He would have done it had it not been for that angel who spoke to him. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, for what's conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And Joseph, who's described as a righteous man, was obedient to the word of God that was given to him through the angel of God. Here in our passage, once again, it's an angel of the Lord who speaks to the man of God. This angel comes and says to Joseph, get up, take your family, take the child and, the, and his mother, and go to Egypt. And once again, we find that Joseph, who is a righteous man, responds with spontaneous obedience. He gets up, wakes up his wife, says we've got to take the child and we've got to get out of the country and we must go to Egypt. I don't know how many times you and I ever think about Mary and Joseph as being a model marriage, but it seems to me that they exemplify much of marriage by God's design. I've always been told and taught, and I've told others that as the husband, the husband is to be the spiritual leader of the home. Now, for most of us guys, we don't have a clue what that really means. We like to say it one to the other. Now, we're supposed to be the spiritual leader of our house. We don't know what that really means, and nobody knows in tangible ways how to really do that. But we say to each other, guys, we've got to be the spiritual leaders. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, take a gander at the life of Joseph, and you and I will get a couple of good pointers. First of all, he's described as a righteous man. Righteousness is a gift that God bestows upon those who believe, but righteousness is also something that you and I do in the presence of God and anyone who's watching. Righteousness is a gift from God, yet also righteousness is something that you and I do. We desire to do the right thing. We want to be moral, upright, ethical, uh, men of character. We strive to be right in the very presence of God. So righteousness is something that he bestows upon us by faith, yet righteousness is also something that we do in response to our faith. So Joseph was a man who was righteous. What does that mean? He really wanted to do the right thing. The right thing according to God and God's word. Not a standard that he would make up on his own, but he wanted to be right. He wanted to do the right thing. He's also described as one who is spontaneously obedient. The word of God comes to the man of God. The man of God is obedient to the word of God. Really no questions are asked. In fact, We're not really told much about what Joseph thinks or how he feels. The only thing we're told is what he does. So that tells us that while thoughts and feelings may be important, and they probably are, what's even more important is what you do, how you live, how you respond to the instruction that God gives you. It is Joseph who responds in spontaneous obedience. He has a dream and an angel speaks to him and says get up take the child and his mother and go to Egypt and he wakes up and he tells his wife Mary what the angel has said to him and she responds okay stop and think about this ladies I mean how kooky would it be if tonight your husband wakes up in the dead of sleep and he says to you darling 
God has just spoken to me and, 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 and we've got to pack everything up and we've got to leave the country tonight. Ladies, what would you say to your man? The nice version would be, now darling, you're just having a, having a dream, go back to sleep. That's the nice version. Some would say, you're an idiot, what are you thinking about? I'm not going anywhere, right? Some of you would throw on the lights and you'd have a good old-fashioned brawl right there and you'd go at it and you know you'd say you're you're just a moron what are you doing and some of you may even wake up the next morning and post it all on Facebook and say you wouldn't believe what my husband said to me last night (laughs) yet what does Mary do it seems that Mary just says okay She's following the lead of her godly husband. The Bible talks about that as as submission. That that doesn't mean that that Mary couldn't think. It doesn't mean that she couldn't make a decision for herself. It doesn't mean uh, that she just followed blindly the instruction of her husband. But as her godly guy was living out his godliness, she was willing to follow him. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like marriage by God's design it sounds a lot like biblical marriage and furthermore let me add this other little point that on three occasions in our passage it is described for us that Joseph took the child and his mother the child and his mother the child and his mother this is not normal normally the children will always regard it as last in any list But in this case, the scripture clearly tells us that Joseph was in charge and he took the child and his mother. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Joseph and Mary had a child-centered home. What it does mean is that Joseph and Mary had a Christ-centered home. Once again, that sounds pretty biblical to me. It sounds like some pretty good advice for moms and dads even today, especially today. Because oftentimes we get so wrapped up and caught up in the needs and the greeds of our children. And for most of us and many of us, our agendas, our time, our schedule, our calendar, our resources, it's all wrapped up in a child-centered home. Whatever the child wants, the child gets. Yet here in our passage, we see that this home was not necessarily child-centered. It was Christocentric. It was Christ-centered. So that even their coming and going was dictated and based upon Christ. I wonder how many of us, when we get to sit down and and, and schedule our calendar and, and, and our events and our vacation and our activities, how many of us surrender that unto the Lord and say, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Jesus, is this what you is this what you want me to do in the month of January and February and March and April and May and June and July and August, September, October, November and December? Is this what you have for me in 2017? How many of us say, before we make a decision, before we put something on the calendar, before we do this or make that commitment to go there, we need to allow it to be surrendered unto the leadership of Christ because we want to have a Christocentric home. I don't know how many of us have ever thought that Mary and Joseph were a model marriage, that they were the marriage by God's design, but it seems to me that Joseph attempted to be a spiritual leader. What does that mean? He tried to do the right thing according to God's standard, and he was spontaneous in his obedience. And it seems that that Mary was submissive to the godly leadership of her husband. 
And it seems that together they tried to live their life with a Christ-centered home. Well, they get up, they, they leave town, they leave the country, they go to Egypt. When Herod realizes that he had been outwitted by the wise guys, he was furious. He gave an edict, a decree that said every male boy living in Bethlehem or its vicinity, two years of age or younger, must be executed. He did this in accordance with what he learned from the Magi. For they told him when they first saw the star and when they followed it, and he did the calculations, so he said, whoever this uh, proposed Christ child may be, he's got to be two years of age or under, and I've got to deal with him decisively. And so he, gave, he gives the decree to execute every male boy in Bethlehem and its vicinity. He doesn't know exactly which one is regarded as the Christ child, but if you get rid of all of them, then surely you've gotten rid of the one, Right? Historians tell us that at this time, there were probably about a thousand people in the population of that little town called Bethlehem. When you do just the sociology, the demographics, probably there's an estimate that there were about 20 male boys, two years of age or younger, that were probably executed at that time. Historians call it the slaughter of the innocents. It ought to break our hearts. We stop and think about um, those little toddlers. They didn't do anything to deserve death, did they? I mean, it wasn't their fault. It, it, it's not that those families did anything specifically that, that, that meant that their child was to be executed. Seems kind of vicious and vile, doesn't it? It seems tragic, sad, doesn't it? That in one fell swoop, uh, the government issued an execution. Our hearts break when we think about this. After all, we realize that the angel declared that with the coming of the Christ child, there would be peace on earth. Yet as, as long as Jesus has been here, there hasn't been peace. His arrival has been met with hostility not peace. Little baby boys are being executed. That doesn't sound very peaceful. That sounds pretty hostile. We think to ourselves, how tragic. Why did that happen? Think with me that if Jesus and the family ever went back to Bethlehem for a family reunion, I wonder what it would do to the psyche of a person when Jesus walked up and realized there are no other boys his age to play kickball in the street. When he goes to the family reunions, there's no other boys his age to go and, and run uh, across the field or, or to play together. There are no boys his age. And I bet the other moms and dads put two and two together as well. They thought to themselves, now wait a minute, that's the only boy. I had a boy his age, but he was executed. Why wasn't this one executed? And when it came time for that class to graduate from Bethlehem High, <laughs> There were no boys in that class. Everybody must have thought, wow, this is weird. This is sad. Why is this? Why, why were these children picked off? Why were they selected to be executed? 
Whenever we think about the death of children, our hearts sink, right? It was, it was only four years ago, on December the 14th, 2012, when that gunman entered that elementary school in Connecticut. Sandy Nook was its name. And he went in, executed approximately 20 elementary-aged children. And our hearts sank. We can remember those sights and those stories, those pictures, the newscasts. We can remember that. It's only been four years since that tragedy took place. Our hearts sink when we think about that, and rightfully so. And yet, can I just tell you that our culture has a twisted hypocrisy, doesn't it, when it comes to life and death? I mean, we sit there and we grieve over the death of those 20 elementary students, and rightfully so, and we should. And yet, many of our culture will turn a blind eye to the 1.3 million abortions that will be performed in this country every single year. That on average, every hour in our American culture, 156 babies are aborted. Every single hour. And we in the church, we know, don't we, that the baby in a mother's womb is no less human than a baby in a mother's arms. I realize that in a crowd of this size, I could be stepping on toes. I understand that some of you may know firsthand the personal pain of what an abortion can bring. Maybe you endured an abortion. Maybe it was your uh, high school girlfriend who had to endure an abortion. That's been several years ago, yet you still carry the scars of that. I don't have to convince you how painful that is. Oh, not necessarily the physical, but the emotional it just lingers with you. This morning, I want you to know that God's grace is sufficient for all of our sin. There is no sin that's too gross for God's grace. If there's ever a time to be reminded of that, it is on Christmas Day. It is on this day when we remember that Jesus came and he, and he died on a cross for your sins and mine and that he came so that we may have salvation. It's not to heap further condemnation upon you. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come for condemnation but for salvation and forgiveness. Jesus came to set us free and there's no sin that's too gross for the grace of our Lord. So my friend, it, whatever you've endured, whatever you've experienced, I want you to know on Christmas Day that God's grace is sufficient for you. This slaughter of the innocents occurred. It was a mandate from King Herod. It was a legal action. As the soldiers meticulously went from house to house throughout the village and they viciously slaughtered approximately 20 male boys, two years of age and younger. When Herod died, an angel once again spoke to Joseph. It's time to go back to Israel, he said. And what does Joseph do? He responds with spontaneous obedience. 
He takes the child and his mother and they go back to Israel. When they discover that Archelaus is now on the throne in place of his daddy Herod and Archelaus was a terrible dude, it is Joseph who says, I think we'll go to that remote place called Galilee. That's where all the rednecks live. We'll go to Galilee in that nice little town called Nazareth. And there we will raise our son. For this is what the Lord wants us to do. And that's the story. When I read that story, there are two takeaways that I have from it that I just want to share quickly with you. The first one is this. Life with Jesus is not easy. Life with Jesus is not easy. On more than one occasion, Mary and Joseph must have looked at each other and said, we didn't know it was going to be this hard. I mean, there's the scandalous pregnancy. There's the birth in a barn. There's the vigilante travel. I mean, and all that's just the first couple of years, right? They must have looked at one another at more than one occasion and said, you know what? We did not know that life with Jesus was going to be this hard. It's not easy living with the Lord. It's not easy uh, doing what he wants you to do. It's not easy. Life with Jesus is not easy. They must have said that to each other on more than one occasion. She must have remembered how the angels spoke to her and said that the Holy Spirit would overshadow you and that you will conceive and give birth to the Savior of the world. And she must have thought to herself in that moment, wow, this is going to be great. But she had no clue what everything was going to happen. They must have looked at each other and said, we had no idea it was going to be this hard. You know, what's true for Mary and Joseph, I dare say, is true for you and me. You didn't know what you were getting into either, did you? When the Holy Spirit came into your life, invaded you, opened up your eyes unto his salvation, called you unto his purpose, and you said, here I am, send me, I'll go, I'll do it, I love the Lord, yet you and I had no idea what following Jesus was going to entail. I think God does that by design. Because if we knew what we would have to endure, that would scare our sandals off. <laughs> There's no way we'd follow after him. But we follow him one step at a time, don't we? He gives us this instruction and we follow it. He gives us that instruction and we follow it. But life with Jesus is not easy. It is not easy to hold your tongue when you really want to retaliate verbally against somebody. Amen? It's not easy to forgive. Forgiveness is not human. Have you realized that? At least the forgiveness in the Bible. As the Bible describes it, forgiveness with no strings attached. Forgiveness is unconditional. That's not human. What's human is forgiveness that is conditional. Forgiveness that, is, that has strings attached. If you do X, I'll do Y. But biblical forgiveness, forgiveness with no strings attached. I don't know about you, but that's hard. And I may be the only one in the house that will admit to it, but that's hard. And when Jesus calls me to forgive somebody unconditionally, there are times I say to the Lord, Lord, I didn't know following you was going to be so hard. It's not easy 
to be nice to the person who's rude to you. It's not easy to be gracious to your enemy. It's not easy to go up and share the gospel with a complete stranger. It's not easy to go up and share the gospel with a family member that you've known all your life. It's not easy to sacrifice. It's not easy to give generously. It is not easy to be selfless. It is our nature to be selfish. We want to do what we want, when we want, where we want, and how we want. It's not easy to be selfless. Yet all of these things that I just described, that's the life that God calls us to in Christ. That's what God uh, demands of us. And there are times when we must say to each other and say to the Lord, Jesus, we had no idea that following you was going to be so hard. Because life with Jesus is not easy. Number one. Number two. Life with Jesus is worth it. Life with Jesus may not be easy, but life with Jesus is worth it. Whatever you sacrifice, whatever you have to give up in this world, oh my friends, that really will pale in comparison to what you will receive uh, in this world and especially in the one to come. Because life with Jesus is worth it. Matthew goes to great detail to describe this. Matthew wants us to know that the Lord is sovereign even in the midst of suffering. Don't miss that. He's sovereign even in the midst of suffering. On three occasions in our passage, it is Matthew who ties the experience, the scenario, the circumstance back to fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. They've got to go to Egypt. Why? Because this is the Christ child and it was foretold by the prophets out of Egypt, I have called my son. Even the tragic scenario of the slaughter of the innocents, even that is connected to what the prophets foretold. For Jeremiah spoke about the voice that is coming from Ramah, five miles to the north of Jerusalem. And it's through Ramah during the Babylonian captivity that the uh, enslaved uh, Israelites would have walked a single file through that city. And mothers and individuals, uh, parents and family members, they would have been weeping and Rachel is always that personification of, of, of the beloved wife who gave up her life in childbirth for Benjamin. And so the prophet even says, Rachel is weeping because her children are no more. And Matthew even says that even in the midst of that suffering, God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And then ultimately, they have to go to Nazareth. Why? Just because they didn't know where else to go? No. It's because that's fulfillment of the prophecy. Because life with Jesus is worth it. He's directing the steps. God is sovereign even in the, even in the suffering. For they will call him a Nazarene. Which, by the way, that was a word of ridicule. That was not a compliment to be called a Nazarene. It really did mean you were a hick. A redneck. Uh, somebody uneducated. And of all the places for the Messiah to come, that's not the scenario. That's not the description that you would give to Jesus. You would say that he has to come from Jerusalem out of the palace. No, he's going to come out of Nazareth with all the hicks. 
that he's the savior of the world. Why does this happen? Because the prophets foretold it. Because God is sovereign even in the suffering. You know, every story is kind of like the Christmas story. There's some places that are a great deal of, of excitement and, a, and jubilation, but there's also some sadness to it. Matthew wants us to know that God is sovereign over every part of your story. The parts that leave a smile on your face, God is sovereign. The parts that leave tears streaming down your cheeks, God is still sovereign. Here's the ultimate question. Do you trust his heart when you can't even see his hand? There were times that Mary and Joseph must have thought to themselves, are, are we doing this right? <laughs> Any parent ever said that before? Are, are we doing this right? Are we doing this marriage thing right? Are we doing this parenting thing right? Are we, are we raising Jesus right? Are we following his lead correctly? Are we doing what he wants us to do? Are we pleasing the Lord? Are we doing this thing right? You ever ask that? Sure you have. And Matthew wants you to trust God's heart even if you can't see God's hand. It's only in hindsight that all these things come together, that it's seen as the fulfillment of, of everything that's been spoken about the Christ child. So this, my friends, is a forgotten Christmas story. This is the part of the story that we don't talk about because we don't really know what to do with it. It's, it's draped in sadness and suffering. What do we do with that? We declare God is sovereign. We declare that he is in control. We declare that he is the one who's calling the shots and we belong to him. Life with Jesus may not be easy, but life with Jesus is always worth it. That's the testimony of the believer. That's the testimony of Mary and Joseph. Is that your testimony? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Lord, we pray that we will follow hard after Christ. Jesus, we acknowledge you did not come to give us an easy life, but you did come to give us eternal life. You did not come to make us happy, but you sure came to make us holy. So, Lord, in this moment on Christmas Day, we pray that whatever decision we make, whatever we do with your word and with Christ, whatever we do will be honoring and pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, thank you that while there may be times that life with Jesus is not easy, we declare that life with Jesus is always worth it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.